You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Scurvy Legs, Brendan, Ironside, MD, Big Beard, Willie P, Schmarls, Josiah, Logan, Pablo, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Jack Joyce, The Knight of Dampier, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Let's begin today by addressing a question that I've been asked by a number of you over the past couple of weeks. Several folks have reached out to see if I've seen The Last Pirate Kingdom on Netflix. And if so, what did I think of it? But the answer is mostly no, I haven't seen it. First of all, I'd like to say that... Anything that talks about real pirate stories and real pirate history is, you know, great. It's a net positive. The story of the Pirates of Nassau is what got me, and I assume a lot of other people, interested in pirates and piracy in the first place. And then there are the historians that they interview. Colin Woodard, the author of The Republic of Pirates, the first book that got me interested in piracy, well, he's one of those historians. Then there's Laura Sook Duncan, who wrote Pirate Women, and Ed Fox, who I'm pretty sure is E.T. Fox, who's authored some of the best pirate books I've ever read. These days, I'm relying on his King of the Pirates a lot. Those interviews alone make the show worth it. But beyond that, the costumes and the performances all look, you know, great. And then there's that little notice at the corner of the screen at the beginning of the show that says there's sex, nudity, and violence, which, you know, wonderful. But I haven't watched it. I tried to give it a watch, and I had to turn it off in the first few minutes. At the top of the very first episode, they tell us that in 1715, the English and the Spanish had just concluded a great war and I was annoyed. The War of Spanish Succession, which they are referring to, was not a war between England and Spain, not really. It's kind of technically correct, but also not at all. 
the War of Spanish Succession was a war between France and everybody else in Europe. It was King Louis XIV trying to put a bourbon on the throne of Spain, an act that was in direct violation of a treaty and a marriage alliance, an act that he had promised explicitly not to do. Spain and England were allies in the war, not enemies, allied against France. It's almost a repeat of the Nine Years' War, you know, where we are now. The houses of Habsburg and Orange allied against the House of Bourbon. But, you know, I get it. It's a TV show. Why bog down the narrative with a bunch of stodgy old history when what they really need to do is to set up Spain as the main antagonistic force against England in the West Indies? Because the Pirate Republic at Nassau will be concerned with Spain. But then, they set up the privateers. Which you should. The War of the Spanish Succession was fought in the West Indies largely by privateers, many of whom went on to be pirates. But they start talking about Port Royal. Port Royal, Jamaica. They have some white-wigged governor signing letters of mark, and admittedly, some of those excellent historians who do know what they are talking about tell us about the thousands of commissions handed down by the English. All of that's true, valid, and important. But then they show us an image, a lovely image, admittedly, but an image of Port Royal at sunset. They have a bustling harbor filled with ships, all of them, sails furled. And I'm on board, but then, in big, bold numbers, up pops the year. 1713. And that's it. I just, I just couldn't anymore. I mean, Port Royal was at the bottom of the ocean in 1713. There was this pretty massive earthquake in, well, let me check my notes. Oh, wait, I don't have to because I did the reading 1692. An earthquake that devastated Port Royal. 2,000 people died in the first few hours. That earthquake liquefied the soil on which Port Royal stood. Most of the city wound up submerged. Everyone that was left alive after the earthquake had to leave Port Royal proper. They set up a tent town down the coast, and in the aftermath of the earthquake, another three or four or even five thousand people died. Now that shanty town did turn into an actual settlement, and by 1713, there was a city there built on better soil. It shared the same harbor waters, more or less, as Port Royal, and it was similarly protected by Fort Charles. But it wasn't Port Royal, it was Kingston. By 1713, the hive of scum and villainy that was Port Royal was long gone. And again, you know, I do get it. They're setting up the privateers and Jamaica. I spent what, over a hundred hours doing just that. It's important stuff to the story of the pirates, but if that's how sloppy the show is going to be with the history and the interest of, I don't know, narrative clarity, I just can't do it. But you should, if you're interested. I'm sure it's a good story. I mean, I know it's a good story. It looks like once they dive into the meat of it with Henry Jennings and Ben Hornigold and Blackbeard, Vane, Calico Jack, Mary Reed, and Bonnie, it's, it's all going to be great stuff, but maybe not for me. 
Also, though, while we're here, I would like to address another question I've received a few times. No, I've never seen One Piece, and I'm not exactly 100% sure what it is. This is episode 206, Hungry, Stout, and Resolute. We last left the crew of the Charles II immediately after they set their old captain, Captain Gibson, and sixteen of his comrades adrift in a leaky pinnace. The Charles was about ten miles out to sea, off the coast of Spain at the time, and as soon as that pinnace was away from the Charles, that inner circle of mutineers started giving orders. Henry Every and William May and John Guy, kind of a triumvirate on board in those first hours. And for the moment, that was just fine by the crew. They all knew that they had just stolen a ship out from under a bunch of rich and powerful men. They had to get away and to do so quickly, and those men were doing the job. So everyone jumped into action. But immediately they noticed that something was off. The morning sun, still on the rise, was put to port as they got underway. The Charles II was heading south. That's away from England. You might remember that a bunch of these mutineers, before the mutiny took place, while Every and Joy were still recruiting, a bunch of them didn't want to know exactly what the plan was here. They knew that something was afoot, and they were fine with that, and they agreed to sail with the mutineers, but now that they were underway, they needed some answers. Many of the men on board, maybe most of the men on board, assumed that they would be sailing back to England. It would be dangerous, sure, and they might be outlaws, but they wanted to go home. But here they were sailing the wrong way. Now, if we were to believe former Captain Charles Gibson, Henry Every declared his intentions before everyone. He did so earlier that very morning. You know, he's going to sail for Madagascar and seek his fortune. But that might not be totally accurate. Gibson is something of a shaky witness, and several different testimonies seem to agree that the crew wasn't exactly sure what was going on. Then again, those were testimonies from men on trial for piracy, so they might not be 100% reliable either. Still, at least according to those accounts, some of the men began to grumble. So, with the ship well underway, Henry Every called the whole crew before the mast to hold their first council. We don't know too much about that first council on board the Charles II. Those same testimonies would have you believe that all of the men being questioned, including William May, were there against their will, that they didn't take part in any of the pirate stuff, so, you know, sure. But it was here at the mast that Henry Every announced his plan to sail for Madagascar, for the Indian Ocean and the Red Sea to plunder Mughal shipping just like Thomas II had done. It was a plan that, if it worked, would make them all very rich men. But here's the thing. That might have been Henry Every's plan, but was Every the guy that made the plans? Was Henry Every the captain? I mean, shouldn't they have a say in all of that? The election of a captain was one of the cornerstones of pirate culture, but it wasn't 100% set in stone yet. See, 
Some of the buccaneers did elect their captains, like Latter-day Pirates, but many of those buccaneer codes often referred to a ship's owner. The owner was almost always the captain of the vessel. Sometimes they would have a separate ship's master who actually did all the work of a captain, but the owner usually, almost always, held the letter of mark, so in the end he was in charge. Henry Every, though, had no letter of mark. He had no commission. They were well outside the law at this point. And as a captain, Henry Every came in a package deal with this big plan. The crew would have a say in their day-to-day operations, but this would be the voyage if Henry Every was in command. Now, he was the obvious choice to lead them. Nobody would have disputed that, but there was probably some very real and even heated debate about the plan and thus about Henry Every. Debate about installing a man who planned to sail for Asia. As their leader, it was a big, bold plan, but it was also dangerous. So Henry Every sweetened the pot a bit. Buccaneer captains would often take five or six shares of any plunder that was taken, sometimes more than that but Every declared that he was only going to take two. That's almost a big deal. It would certainly be a bump in pay for everyone aboard, as the shares themselves would be larger. Think about it this way. If you had ten people splitting a pile of silver, it would be split ten ways. But if one of those people were to get two shares, the pile of silver would be split up eleven ways so every share would be smaller. More than that bump in pay, though, that declaration showed something about the character of the captain and the voyage. On some buccaneer crews, the captain and sometimes the quartermaster would receive five or six shares. The other ranking officers would get one and a half. But on this voyage, the captain and the quartermaster, and the pilot, and surgeon, and carpenter, and the gunner, would all receive two shares. This showed the crew that Henry Every, as captain, was not going to stand above the rest of the crew. He was going to be an officer to do the job, but he wasn't going to be the master of his ship. Or rather, not his ship. They all stole this very fine vessel together. It was their ship. One thing that would become common among later pirates that wasn't present here, though, as far as I know, there was no discussion of abandoning the captain's cabin. Some pirate ships would use the captain's cabin as storage space or dismantle it altogether and the captain would sleep with the regular crewmen. But on this voyage, Henry Every, or, you know, whoever the captain might wind up being, would have the finest digs on board. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.
Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Finally, they held a vote and Henry Every was elected captain of the Charles II. That's no good. It's named after the king of Spain, Carlos II. But it also brought up memories of their own former English king, Charles II. Neither were names that any person aboard wanted to remember fondly, much less to honor. So they needed a new name for the ship. Unfortunately, no discussions or debates have come down to us in the record. We don't know if the crew bandied about possible names here, you know, cool pirate names, but we do know that they did eventually settle on a name that would carry just as much infamy as any other pirate ship in pirate lore, from the Adventure Galley to the Flying Dutchman to Queen Anne's Revenge. This ship was going to rival all of them. The pirates called her fancy. Now, I realize I kind of buried the lead on this last week when we talked about the pirate verses, and again, somehow someone in England knew about this name change that happened somewhere off the coast of Portugal. But still, it's a big moment for everyone aboard. I occasionally go down these historical rabbit holes in my personal reading, you know, my private time history. Ancient Rome is a big one for me. I'm also fond of the French Revolution and Napoleon. You know, they're big stories with big characters, and those are always fun. I think that's what drew me to pirates. But there's a common theme in both ancient Rome and the Napoleonic Wars. Certain military units would take an immense amount of pride in their unit, and especially in their unit's name. Even if they personally, or anyone in their generation, had never done anything particularly noteworthy, they still felt that pride, maybe inordinately. They call it esprit de corps. In the Gallic Wars, Julius Caesar's legions were numbered like Roman legions traditionally were, one through however many legions you needed to divide your whole army. And once the war was over, those legions would traditionally be disbanded. But Caesar never disbanded his legions. They had to fight in the Civil War. Then, a few years later, Augustus needed them to fight in another civil war. And in that second civil war, the association with Julius Caesar was important. So those legions kept their numerical distinctions. Even years later, after Augustus and every soldier who fought in Gaul was long dead, the 13th, for example, was still the 13th. And you see the same thing in France. 
Units that were forged in the Revolutionary Wars and, especially under Napoleon, would be granted some great honors, sometimes by Bonaparte himself. Those units would treasure those honors, some of them until way after Napoleon was dead. There were units that fought honorably and bravely for the restored Bourbon dynasty, but they refused to give up their Napoleonic distinctions. Sometimes a hotshot young officer would arrive on the scene and decide to do something about it, but that officer would often wake up with a blade in his belly, and no one in the unit would ever have seen anything. They guarded those honors jealously. All of this is to say that sometimes a rose by any other name just doesn't smell as sweet. People take a lot of pride in those kind of things. And now, the crew of the former, Charles II, would be able to take a lot of pride in their new pirate ship, Fancy. And it was a pirate ship. Henry Every's plan was to sail for Africa, then on to Asia, and all along the way, commit some piracy. But there is a small caveat here. They would turn pirate and do all the pirate things, but they would be selective in their targets. First off, no English vessels. We'll get to that. Second, they were going to try to avoid any English allies, or even those that were at peace with England. So for now, the Dutch and the Spanish, they were out. Third, they were going to focus on heathens. Specifically here, I mean Muslims, but Catholics, especially French Catholics, were also fair game. Anyone that the English people as a whole probably wouldn't mind seeing robbed and killed. This was all a bit of pretty brilliant propaganda. Henry Every and the crew of the Fancy were ensuring that, while what they were doing might be illegal, it wouldn't be seen as immoral, at least in the court of public opinion. And there's also the question of the benefits that England might enjoy from the piracy of the Fancy, as long as they stuck to those caveats. Now, it's, you know, foolish to suggest that Henry Every was planning to further the interests of the future British Empire. But historians can draw a pretty clear line between these pirates and the empire of Queen Victoria, and some of that has to do with these restrictions. I want to note, though, that while this caveat was certainly a plan engineered to win over English hearts and minds, there was absolutely personal bias and prejudice at play as well. Henry Every and probably all of his crew saw non-white, non-Christian peoples as the other, as lesser than, as heathen barbarians. And you know, there was kind of a tiered system at play, Jews were slightly better than Muslims, in their eyes, and Catholics were slightly better than the Jews. Other Protestants, of course, were far better than Catholics, but really, only Anglicans knew God's true plan, so they sat at the top. And I don't think that anyone aboard the fancy, including Every, were what you would call devout practitioners of the Anglican faith. That's true for most pirates. But they were cultural touchstones as English people. And of course, when it comes to racial questions, well, things weren't going to get any better on that front. 
I do have a mind to talk about pirate morality in some depth relatively soon. We're going to see some deeply immoral behavior in the very near future, both in our modern value structure and in the values of the time. For now, Fancy sailed on south, past Portugal, and the Pillars of Hercules. If Fancy did stop off in Morocco, in Salay in particular, a stop that would have made sense to refit and to take on supplies, that would have been a perfect opportunity for Henry Every to write a song inviting other brave young men to join him in his piracy. If Henry Every did so, and again, I don't think that he did, but if that were the case, Henry Every might have had Thomas too, the famous pirate of the Red Sea, in mind as his target audience. But imagine this. It's pure imagination. There's no basis in fact here, but imagine. On the day of the mutiny, May 8th, Henry Every asked John Gravitt, the second mate, if he would join them in the mutiny, and Gravitt said that he would not. But before those seventeen legitimate officers were set adrift in their pinnace, Henry Every handed John Gravitt his coat and his letter of commission. And this was kind of a show of respect, but what if Every and John Gravitt were some kind of friends, maybe, you know, old war buddies? What if they had an understanding? What if Henry Every slipped another letter in with that commission? A letter that was most likely to one of the women in his life, maybe a wife who he might have had, or just a lover or a family member like a mother or a sister. A letter that, in this imaginary scenario, would have informed the reader in a bit of detail about the situation on board Fancy. A letter that John Gravitt, all of his personal feelings aside, would be honor-bound to deliver to the intended recipient. I don't think that Henry Every wrote the pirate verses that are attributed to him, but it's not impossible to imagine that they may have been written by one of the women in his life to whom he sent a letter. In 17th century England, men were expected to write history and natural science and war bulletins, honorable kind of writing. Poetry and song and literature, though, were largely the domain of women. You know, very roughly speaking, Shakespeare wrote pretty great poetry and literature in the 17th century. But what if Every asked whoever this mystery woman may have been to contact Thomas too, to get the word out about his plans? But of course that woman would have had no idea how to get in touch with a bunch of pirates. She was an officer's wife or sister or what have you. So she wrote a song. A song that, as it happened, would become a smash hit and get spread all around the English Empire, eventually reaching the ears of Thomas too. Again, it's a what-if scenario, but not an impossible what-if scenario. The next few months are less well-documented for the crew of the fancy. Mostly, the English lawyers at those later trials were not particularly interested in the piracies of the fancy, unless they impacted either the English or the Mughal Empire. The pirates traveled down the coast of Africa, they called it Guinea, and in no particular hurry. They were still getting to know the fancy, maybe the best ship that any of them had ever sailed. 
In fact, that's where the name comes from. The ship was fancy. The pirates did make a stop in North Africa for wood, water, and food, supplies they would need for the long journey ahead of them. Their next stop was at the Cape Verde Islands, where we're going to encounter the very first act of piracy that either Henry Every or the Fancy engaged in. However, we're going to wait to tell that story. The story of the Fancy's first piratical act and their subsequent piratical actions before reaching Madagascar. There's quite a lot there to tell too much to fit into today's episode. And right now, I want to get to what happened shortly after Henry Every and the Fancy arrived at Madagascar and moved on. After they rounded the Cape of Good Hope and eventually made their way to probably St. Augustine Bay on Madagascar, the pirates put in at a small island called Johanna. It was Dutch territory, as was most of South Africa. Their landing at Johanna happened a full ten months after the mutiny at Akarunya, and it appeared that somewhere along those nine months Henry Every had encountered the pirate verses, at least that's what I choose to believe. I like to imagine that the pirates waiting there at St. Augustine Bay, who had had word from the outside world, sang this song to Every when he and his men arrived. The reason I want to skip ahead a bit is because there at Johanna, Henry Every is going to write a letter, an open letter to all English commanders, and that letter is going to inform some of what had already happened, but we have yet to talk about. That letter reads, quote, to all English commanders. Let this satisfy that I was writing here at this instant in the ship Fancy, man of war, formerly the ship Charles of the Spanish expedition, who departed from Carunia the 7th of May, 94, being and am now in a ship of 46 guns, 150 men, and bound to seek our fortunes. I have never as yet wronged any English or Dutch, nor never intend while I am commander. Wherefore, as I commonly speak with all ships, I desire whoever comes to ye perusal of this to take this signal, that if you or any whom you may inform are desirous to know what we are at a distance, then make your entan, i.e. ensign, flag, up in a ball or bundle, and hoist him at the mizzen peak. The mizzen being furled, I shall answer with the same, and never molest you. For my men are hungry, stout, and resolute. Should they exceed my desire, I cannot help myself. As yet an Englishman's friend, at Johanna, February 28, 1695. Henry Every. There's perhaps less to unpack from that letter than from the pirate verses, but in essence what it is, is a declaration that he has done it. He stole the ship Charles II, renamed her Fancy, and sailed off for a life of piracy, but he ensures the people of England that he has no intention of attacking any English or Dutch ships that come to him in friendship. The symbol, the proof of their peaceful intentions is to bundle their flag up at the top of the mizzenmast. Any ship that fails to do so, Henry Every is telling us, he has no intention of attacking, but his men are hungry, stout, 
and resolute, and he might not be able to control them. Next time, we're going to talk about their pit stop at the Cape Verde Islands. We're going to talk about the pirate verses in London, and we're going to talk about the arrival of this letter on every desk in England. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon or left us ratings or reviews or just recommended this show. You all make this possible. Thank you. Our theme music, as always, was The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you have not checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. And as always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight